Hey Life Canyon, Roger here, one of the directors, and I'm so glad that you're joining us, whether you're listening to us for the first time or you're someone who listens to our sermons uh, in our other podcasts quite frequently. Um, either way, we're welcome, uh, welcome, and we are glad that you are here. just want to remind you that you belong, however long you've been listening to us or uh, however frequently you've been listening to us. We believe that you belong to God, so you belong to this community. And we want to get you plugged in, to get you connected with other brothers and sisters of Christ, or get you connected uh, if you have questions about faith or our church. So be sure to fill out a connect card so that we can best do that. You can do that on our Life uh, Can website or on our Church Center app. Also, uh, after you hear this message, if you feel uh, called or, or motivated to support the vision of God at this church, uh, what he's doing not only uh, in our day-to-day, but also through our 10-year vision to help uh, others reclaim their identity in Christ and to bear the torch of Jesus' love and justice to our community, then I would encourage you to take this opportunity to do so by giving via our, again, Church Center app or our LifeCan website. But right now, you're going to hear another message on Mark, which is our summer series, this time from Pastor Jared. Give that a listen, and I will catch up with you in just a moment. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. I am very glad that you are here with us today as we continue in our series on the book of Mark. We are up to chapter 13, so this has been a good summer. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Maybe you've been reading along with us as well. encourage you to keep on doing that so that we're in alignment with where the messages are going. Uh, We're going to get into that in just a second, but I want to share just a couple things, some celebrations, some family updates as well. I want to celebrate what happened last week. We had 13 people get baptized outside, and that was exciting. Excellent. Uh, it was a blast uh, to be out there, to be outside using the pavilion as well, and just be in the warm weather. It was awesome, and just so much, uh, so many stories of new life that God is doing here as well. That's a, that's a code of ours. It's important to us. It's on our wall. We're driven by new life. And so if you're just checking things out for the first time, or maybe you've been here a couple times and you haven't uh, connected with us yet, I want to throw up a QR code on the screen, and then you can scan that with your phone, get connected with us. We'll help you take some next steps if you have any difficulty with that. Just go visit us out in the lobby as well. But I also want to mention that uh, not only is new life happening and God is at move in people's lives, but I want to let you know that part of your, what you're doing here, what you're investing in this church, makes things like that possible. And so I want to say thank you for your generosity, uh, for making that happen. Obviously, God does the work, but we get to participate in that as well. And I want to give you a family update. Uh, I mentioned that we started our budget year in July now, so we switched it instead of January to uh, December. It's now July to the the next year in June. And so we're two months in. I just wanted to give you an update and make you aware of where we are. And so uh, that's going to be here on the screen so that we can understand kind of what those first two months have been. And so that is as of 826. So August 26, uh, we don't have all of the numbers yet from just the last week. So this is all concerning this date and that our need, our year-to-date need for that particular date is 124923 And uh, what has been given so far is $118,003. That's nothing to sneeze at. That is a big deal. That's awesome. And I want to say thank you for your giving. Thank you for your generosity. 
And what it does is it tells us kind of where we're at. We are just below about $6,920. And so I just want to make you aware of that. That's not uh, to make anybody afraid, make, it, make anybody freak out, but just to make you aware. Part of the reason for this number is very typical in churches in America that the months of June, July, and August tend to be lower giving months. So that's very normal. But I want us to uh, continue to be encouraged to stay committed to what we were accountable to and what we said we were going to do. I want to break it down just a little bit further for us and uh, show you this next slide. And that is um, over this summer, we've had about an average of 200 adults who have been attending each weekend, which is good. Our, Our attendance numbers are going up, but the giving necessarily hasn't matched that. And so what we wanted to show you is if we were to talk about that current deficit of 6,920 and divide it by 200 adults, that would be about $35. So what I want to ask you, not shame or guilt or any uh, obligation by any means, but simply to make you aware that if uh, all of us adults would give just an extra $35 above what we normally give, we'd be right back on track and right back where we need to be. So I just wanted to make you aware just to give you some perspective. Sometimes those numbers are helpful to kind of understand where we are. And in the spirit of transparency and making sure that we're all aware of where our budget is, I wanted to bring that to you. So if you would like to give, you can go to lifecanton.org give, or you can give on the QR code uh, for those of you who've been giving online giving, or if you want to give something physical in the black boxes before you leave here today, you can do that. For those of you who are new, we don't normally do this. I I don't make it a a weekly uh, topic to talk about where we are with the budget, but since we're two months in with our new budget, I just wanted to make you aware of that. And here's the thing. I want to be super clear about this. I don't want anybody to have any feelings of shame or guilt or obligation. For some people, $35 is is a lot. That's a stretch for you. And so uh, that, that maybe feels impossible. For others, maybe you're not in that place. Whatever it is that you are feeling, whatever it is that you feel God might be laying on your heart, I want you to be obedient to that and give joyfully. Don't give out of obligation, okay? So that's just a quick kind of family update about this church, about where we are. I want to take us right back to Mark. So we're going to go right back to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 13. Before we get to that chapter specifically, I want to highlight something that I said a couple weeks ago, if you were here. I said at the end of my message that I had been noticing a lot of online traffic in regards to maybe a few people from this church, but Christians in general, talking about the end times. Raise your hand if you've heard these phrases come out. The end times, right? The end times are among us. The end times are at hand. The end times are near, and we know it, right? And oftentimes what's associated with this topic of the end times are really the combination of two things. It's paired with immense destruction and catastrophe, as well as the arrival of Jesus. People tend to, Christians tend to, focus on that first half, destruction and catastrophe. And what they do is talk about all of these horrible things that are happening. Haven't you seen the news? And look at all the wars and the famine and the earthquakes. Those things are happening. And then what we do is we cherry pick scriptures from the Bible and we say, well, Jesus talked about these or, 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 or the Old Testament talked about these events and they're all happening. And now we can see them unfolding. And what's that, what that's paired with is if all of these things are happening, well, then that means we're closer to the arrival of Jesus. If all of these things are happening, that means Jesus is coming back sooner rather than later. It's going to be soon. The end is near. That's kind of what's been discussing, uh, what's been, been discussed online. And 
I want to let you know that none of that's new. That's been discussed for the last 2,000 years, but it is just more televised. It's more aware. It's more uh, present among us, especially in social media spaces. And then some of you might be like, well, that seems like an okay thing to talk about. What's so bad about posting something like that? What it's usually attached to is if the end times are among us and if Jesus is coming back, well, then we have a job to do. We must share the gospel with everybody that we know. We must urgently get to work in sharing the gospel. And again, you're like, well, again, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. Why would that be an issue? And then you heard me say, we should probably not do that. We should probably not participate in these kinds of messages because I think they're unhelpful. Today, I want to talk about why. Why I think those kinds of messages of destruction and catastrophe and the arrival of Jesus and urgently sharing the gospel with everybody that we know. I want to tell you why I said what I said two weeks ago. If you weren't here two weeks ago and none of that makes sense, it's okay. You don't need to see part one of the movie. Part two is going to be just fine, okay? So here we go. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 addresses this kind of literature, addresses this kind of speak about the end times or what most people believe is the end times. Here's what it says in just the first two verses. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones and the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. So before we even get started with some of the other stuff, and some of you have read ahead and you know where we're going, just by reading these two verses, can you get a sense for what we're about to talk about? And we've talked about this before uh, as we've gone through the book of Mark. It is so important to always pay attention to what's coming before, what's coming after, so that we can understand what's in the middle, what's in between. If you had to guess, quick pop quiz, and you're going to speak out loud to me, okay, on the count of three. If you had to guess what the next whole section was about, what do you think it is in one word? Shout it out. One, two, three. All right. I heard temple. I think I heard Jesus. Jesus is always a safe answer. That's okay. That's a Sunday school answer. You're right. You're absolutely right if you said Jesus. It is about Jesus. You're right on track. Some of you said, said, said temple as well. Some of you said some other things and they didn't quite understand because you haven't had your coffee yet. And that's okay. There's more coffee out in the lobby. Let's continue reading the whole next section. And I want you to pay attention to what you feel when you hear and read these words. So let's start in verse three. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it's not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray brother 
uh, will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Take your blood pressure right now if you can. Just get a pulse. How do you feel? What's the emotion in the room right now as you read passages like this? And typically, how do we respond to passages like this? For those of you who grew up in in churches where maybe they talked about end times kind of thinking a a lot, oftentimes what they would say is, yeah, all all of these things are happening. My my kids are horrible. They need to get back to school and it makes me feel like I want to be killed. There's there's all kinds of issues. My family, I mean, this is Thanksgiving right here. And then, yeah, there's wars, there's earthquakes, there's famine, there's all this stuff. I've seen it in the news Jesus was talking about the stuff that's happening right now. He, he must be right. We must be urgent about this. There's catastrophe all around us. We've got to make sure we tell everybody. Or something to that effect is what is typically preached about, what is typically talked about. And then there's additional messages. You've got people on on street corners holding sandwich board signs saying turn or burn. And what do they mean? Turn to Jesus or you're going to burn in hell. The end is near. All of these kinds of ideas, all of these images become synonymous with sharing the gospel, the good news. Urgent catastrophe, destruction, fear. So what do we do with these passages? How do we understand these? Well, we could just kind of comb back through once again and just look at the action steps of Jesus. He says things like, don't be misled, don't panic, don't worry, endure. We could just pack it up and go home and that would be enough for us to go on and that would be okay. But there's more here for us to unpack. What I want to talk about is this idea of the end. But first, we need to ask this question. We always need to ask this question. What was Jesus saying to them before we ask the question, what is he saying to me? Or what is he saying to us? So that's what we're going to do first. What was he saying to them? What I want to do is we could focus on a lot of the different uh, pieces of destruction, a lot of the different catastrophes. But what I want to do is I want to focus on this word right here, the end. It's mentioned a couple times. And this word, the end, gets used throughout the New Testament in a variety of different ways. In this specific passage, the word end here is the Greek word telos. Telos. And it's a, simply this, a, the conclusion of a goal. So what Jesus is talking about to his first century audience is there's a goal that's going to be fulfilled, a singular event that is going to happen and it's it's kind of going to come to an end. Telos. It's a telos moment. It's a singular end to something. Well, what goal might be accomplished? What did we read about in the first two verses? The temple. The temple is going to be destroyed. And because of that, it's going to cause a rippling effect into everything else that they know in the first century world. So just to give us some perspective, for, for those of us who, who read this, who read you know 2,000-year-old ancient literature, the destruction of a building doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. What's the big deal? It's a, it's a temple. Go on with your life. But to them, that would have been huge. It is their very identity wrapped up in the temple and all of what the temple represents. It is not only important to them socially, but also politically, economically, and certainly religiously. 
It's their very identity wrapped up in this structure, this massive structure, which is why the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, are like, isn't this amazing? Isn't this incredible? That would have been normal for those first century believers to do, to notice how amazing this structure was, not just because it was an amazing building, but also because it pointed them to God. It helped them realize God is still on the throne. God is still in charge. We're still okay. Even all, if all of these other circumstances aren't going the way that I want them to, at least I can look up to the temple and I can say, okay, God's still in charge. God's still faithful. We can still trust in him. You take that away, you take away their livelihood. And so the way in which Jesus is talking about these telos moments the, the destruction of the temple and families being disoriented and disunified and wars and famines and all of these things is because this is very real in this moment for them. Now, here's the thing. Is Jesus talking about the first century or is he talking about something else? Well, the temple actually does get destroyed. It's not just some random abstract prophecy that Jesus is saying is going to happen in the future way down the road 2,000, 3,000 years later. No, this happens. In fact, we, you can read about it in history books. It happens in 70 AD, about 40 years later after Jesus is talking about this. But here's the other interesting thing is that the book of Mark itself is written, you know when? Around 70 AD, which is why Mark is written in such an urgent way to let his followers, to let uh, all of the followers of Jesus and the other disciples and the apostles and all of this, this early church know that, hey, you probably need to understand why all of this is happening. Guess what? Jesus spoke about it earlier. There's an urgency here because it's happening among them. This is a telos end to everything that this first century world would know and would hold dear. What does that mean for us then? Well, I mentioned there is this word, the end, in other parts of the New Testament. Telos is the word that we get in this uh, area of the scriptures, in this particular chapter. We get another word that represents the end, which is what most people tend to talk about. It's this word eschaton, eschaton. And it just means the final summation of all the goals. So it's like this. If telos are these individual singular goals that are being fulfilled or that are coming to an end or con being concluded, uh, eschaton is all of the telos goals being fulfilled. The, the, the summation of all of it coming to an end. But it's much deeper and much richer than that. Telos moments tend to focus on some of these moments that tend to be a little bit more destructive. Now, telos, a telos moment also includes the arrival of Jesus, of Jesus coming back. But eschaton is so much bigger, so much brighter, so much more hope-filled. Eschaton is like what's on the other side of all of these telos endings. And what's on the other side of it is, is much more mysterious. And it's much more hope-filled. It's filled with beauty and joy and hope and all of these things that are void of all of the suffering, void of all of the cancer and the racism and the injustice and the senseless shootings and the illness that we continue to experience over and over and over. And we see this promise fulfilled in Revelation, this mysterious eschaton or eschatology, the last things where it's a fulfillment of a new beginning where there's no more tears, no more crying, no more weeping, no more sadness. That's not destruction. That's not catastrophe. 
That is hope. That is freedom. That is love. That is unadulterated beauty and joy. And we look forward to that. But the end times, destruction, catastrophe, is what we tend to talk about when we talk about the end. Most Christians tend to focus on telos. They don't focus on eschaton, the joy and beauty of what's ahead. Eschaton is where we get this word eschatology, which is the study of the last things, which it's not the study of the end times. That's a different idea that was really only developed in the early 1800s and became popularized in the 1970s by a science fiction writer. And then the Left Behind books, which led us astray into understanding everything about the end times having to do with destruction, but not about the actual eschaton and the beauty that's ahead. So what do we do with this? How do we talk about this? How do, how do we talk about this part, the eschaton? Because that's still in there, right? Like I, I mentioned, it's important we ask the question, what was Jesus saying to them before we ask the question, what is he saying to us? That's an important question or group of questions to ask. And what we understand and primarily believe, most New Testament scholars believe that Jesus is specifically speaking to that first century audience. However, there's a minority of some scholars who would say, well, can't he be talking about both? Might Jesus be talking, yes, primarily and first and foremost to that first century audience, but couldn't we also use Mark 13 as sort of an understanding or backdrop for the pattern of human history, what's been happening for the last 2,000 years? Guess what? All of the destruction and catastrophe and chaos that we read about in Mark 13, all of that stuff has been happening for 2,000 years. And it continues to happen. None of that is new. But it could give us insight, a backdrop for how we understand this future hope of eschaton that is still yet to come, because that hasn't happened yet. So how do we understand it in that perspective? And how do we still think about the urgency of sharing the gospel? I mean, is there no urgency anymore? If, if that's just about telos moments and, well, yeah, the destruction of the temple already happened, and so we don't really need to worry about that, does that take away from the urgency of sharing the gospel? I would put it like this. Let's look at uh, chapter 13, verse 8. And it uses this interesting imagery that I think is important to pay attention to. Jesus says this, this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. The reason I highlighted this idea of the birth pains is because that's not just relegated to Mark 13. This concept of birth pain, this metaphor that Jesus uses, also gets used in other parts of the New Testament as well. And why is that? Why is birthing uh, an important metaphor for how we talk about the end or the eschaton? Well, think about birth or childbirth. There's equal parts joy, but also pain, right? There's, there's pain, there's waiting, there's an anticipation of what's to come. And I don't know for you moms what your experience was uh, before the baby came into the world, but I know for us, when we found out that my wife was pregnant, a lot of the conversation stemmed around what it was going to be like on the other side of labor. There wasn't a whole lot of conversation about that moment, although there was some. We had some awareness. We had some classes. But really, we were spending time thinking about what's the child going to be like? Will they look like you? Will they look like me? Will they be handsome like me? Uh, you know, like what color eyes will they be? You know, like just thinking about what was it going to be like? Imagining the future. And getting excited, having some anticipation and joy for what was yet to come. 
There was very little attention paid to this moment where she would go into labor. That's not to say that anyone is less important or more important. It was just that's what dominated the nature of our conversations. I think the reason that the New Testament writers use this birthing imagery when it comes to this idea of the eschaton, of what is yet to come, is to acknowledge without diminishing the pain, the waiting, the suffering, the anticipation, while recognizing that there's so much more to come afterwards. The destruction and catastrophe will only happen for a moment. But what is on the other side of that is so much greater. And for all of eternity, we should focus on that and draw people into that. I think the Apostle Paul does a masterful job of using this birth pain imagery. Check it out in Romans chapter 8. And there's just three verses that I want to highlight in verses 20 to 23. He says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. We get the bad news there. But with eager hope. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Now I want to be clear, the the word eschaton doesn't necessarily show up in these explicit passages, but Paul is drawing us toward that. Drawing us toward this image of the future hope, the future glory, a release from death and decay. This final moment when the full expression of the kingdom of God will be completely realized. Doesn't that imagery, that metaphor of birth pains help with a sense of anticipation, but also also with a sense of of urgency? There's there's an urgency here that we want to draw people into to say, yes, we, we still want people to understand the hope of Jesus and the goodness and the grace that comes with knowing him. Because there's this moment that's still coming. It's a bit of a mystery. We don't know what it all looks like and how it's all going to shape out. But I think our understanding of this metaphor can help shape our understanding and our definition of urgency. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. How do we understand urgency as it relates to sharing the gospel in light of the eschaton? I think the best way I can illustrate it is by telling a birth story. And I recognize the story I'm about to tell um, is, is, is my story. It's not necessarily everybody else's story and certainly not every mom's story that's in the room or watching online. And so I recognize that uh, even the story I tell could be um, triggering for some who had different experiences, who had maybe more painful experiences. I just want to share the story of two of our kids that were born. We have twin girls. For those of you who don't know me, we have a son, Jude, and twin girls, Lena and Cora. They're now 11 years old. And, um, and they're not like the children that I read about at all. They, they completely obey me at all times, every single day. It'll be better when they go back to school. Anyway, the day that they were born, I want to tell you that story. So uh, my wife woke up really early in the morning and was feeling a little bit different than what she normally felt, um, but she was, wasn't quite sure, so she called the hospital. 
And she said, here's kind of what I'm experiencing. And they said, yeah, why don't you go ahead and come on in? Because with twins, you're automatically an at-risk pregnancy. And so they were treating her as such. And so we got all of our things, got into the car. I drove, uh, may have gone over the speed limit, although, you know, who's counting? Anyway, uh, we got to the hospital and we get into this room and they're checking things out. And, uh, and they said, uh, looks like we're going to have these girls come into the world today. We're, they're going to be born today. And we're like, okay, here we go. So we're staying here. And so they take my wife into a different room and say, we need to get you prepped. And they say, just wait for a moment. And then a nurse comes in and gives me scrubs so that I can go and join in the room. I walk into this room and there's like 10 or 11, 12 people, doctors and nurses in this room, more, way more than were there for my son's birth. And so this is a new experience for me, but everybody seemed really calm, cool, collected. Um, my instinct is, I want to see, I want to learn, I want to, you know, take in information. So I just walk right up and I just kind of stand next to the doctors and look over at my wife's, you know, stomach gaping open. And the doctors and nurses are like, whoa, 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 you go and sit down here. This is not for you. You sit behind the curtain and be with your wife because we don't need to be taking care of four patients instead. So I got, I got to miss out, you know, on that part. So I go and I sit by my wife. And everything was a little bit of a blur because it's still early in the morning. It was a little bit foggy. Uh, but everybody, the doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, were all just super cool, calm, and collected. Everybody seemed really just chill. And I remember noticing that and, and, and feeling very cared for in the moment. And before I knew it, here come the girls and they go to their separate spots and the doctors and nurses are, are caring for each child. And then they say, why don't you go into this other room and then we'll take the, the girls to you when, when they're ready. So I go and I do that. I get to hold each girl one at a time. And then they said, hey, they, they need to progress, uh, progress a little bit further. So we're going to be actually taking them to another hospital because we don't have the capacity uh, for what they need right now. They're born a little bit premature. So they had to go to the special care unit for about a week, two weeks, respectively. And so, and, and all of that was good and everything was fine. They were healthy and happy babies. Fast forward to uh, their first appointment and our first meeting with the delivering doctor. And she sits us down. And she says, guys, I got to tell you, I was, I was pretty concerned that day. We're like, what are you talking about? What? You didn't seem concerned at all. Everything seemed routine. Everything seemed very normal. And she begins to explain this very dire medical situation that could have ended in catastrophe, that deeply affected primarily first Lena and then could have affected uh, my wife as well, and also potentially, if it wasn't uh, operated in time, could have affected Cora as well. A very dire, possibly destructive and catastrophic decision. And we had no clue. We had no idea that any of this had gone on. Because all, all I could remember is just, man, everybody seems really chill. Everybody seems confident and caring, compassionate. Like, this is very routine until I found out that this was actually a pretty dire situation. Here's the reason I bring that up. is because in that situation, for those doctors and nurses, they understood the urgency of our situation. But what they didn't do is sit us down in a room and say, we need to talk through all of the potential destruction and catastrophe that could be happening. I don't know if this is going to work out. I mean, we could lose one of the children. We could lose all three of you. This is going to be really bad. They didn't freak us out and terrify us about all of the potential damage that could have been done. They simply did their profession in a confident, caring, and compassionate way. 
And as a result of that, we were blessed and fortunate enough to bring these two children into the world. The reason I bring that up is because as we think about this idea of talking about the end, what Christians, Christian leaders, and pastors have a habit of doing far too often is catastrophizing the end. Talking about all of the potential damage and destruction that this is going to be and, and freaking people out. And I need to make sure that if I share the gospel with you, then I have to terrify you. I have to panic you. I have to worry you into the good news of Jesus in order for you to make sure that you're really afraid that you don't want to experience that so that you can experience the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus is spent about this much time of energy on and the rest of it is all of the rest. It's all of the destruction and catastrophe. It's not helpful. It's not effective. That's a frantic urgency. I thought about this way. How do we define urgency? And since we've got kids going back to school, we're all going to join you. We're all going to go back to school for a second and get back to our foundations. I want to give you the ABCs of urgency. I know it sounds cheesy, but just stick with me, okay? Let's talk about the ABCs of urgency. Our attitude, our behavior, our character. When I think about those doctors and nurses... They had a confident attitude. They were so caring in the way that they behaved. And their character just exuded compassion. Do we do this? When we share the gospel, when we have a sense of urgency to an unbelieving or unknowing world? Or are we much more frantic and fear-based and forceful with our message? This is why I think digital gospel sharing, invoking the end times is not helpful. Because it's not a fruitful sense of urgency. I would ask you this way. What is our bedside manner when sharing the gospel? Is it frantic or is it fruitful? What do we mean by fruitful? The fruit of the Spirit. If we are growing, if we allow that foretaste of the Holy Spirit to give us glimpses of what is beyond, then that Holy Spirit is developing within us something that is growing, and it's growing fruit. And we get this picture of what that fruit looks like. And it's not frantic and fear based and forceful. The fruit that grows within us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Fear doesn't show up on that list. Frantic, frenetic, forceful are not fruits of the Spirit. What is our bedside manner to an unbelieving, unknowing, skeptical world? You want to talk about the end being near? What's your ABCs of urgency? What's your attitude like? What's your behavior like? What's your character like when you're in conversation? I think the way that we can grow in this fruitfulness is by coming alongside other people, getting help, sharpening one another, cultivating the soil within our hearts so that that fruit can grow well. You're going to hear about that from John in a little bit, talking about getting involved in life journey, getting involved in groups. But if there's any doubt for any of you in the room or any sense of fear about the end, that like those, those ideas, that sort of apocalyptic literature just kind of freaks you out. I want to give you a slightly different perspective. 
in one of the books that kind of tends to talk about the end. It's the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible. There's this moment where God speaks and he talks about himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What do you do when somebody says, the end is near? You could say, yeah, my God is the end. He is near. God is the end. You don't need to worry about all of these telos moments, about all of the catastrophe and destruction. If God is in himself the end of all things, then yeah, God is near. The end is near. And I'm cool. I'm good to go. Because he is caring for me. He is protecting me. He is providing for me. I don't need to worry about all of that catastrophe out there because God is with me. He will never leave me and never forsake me. You do not have to fear. You do not have to be fretful. And you do not have to be forceful in your urgency. Show people unadulterated love, joy, and peace. Amen? Amen. 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 I want to turn the corner for just a moment. I mentioned that uh, a lot of us uh, students, we're going back to school. Some of your students have already gone back to school. Uh, just a moment, I think our elementary students are going to be coming into the room. If you are going into kindergarten all the way up to your senior year of high school, or maybe you're even a college student, you're an adult, a college student, um, I want to invite you to come forward because we want to pray for you and, and bless you as you begin this new year. Because as we talk about this concept of being afraid or maybe feeling frantic, we recognize that there's some students Man, you're starting something new. Maybe you're at a new school. Maybe you have a new teacher that you weren't necessarily hoping for and you're just trying to figure it all out and maybe you don't have any friends and so it's going to be hard. So I want to pray for you. And and I don't know where you're at in your faith, um, what you believe about God, but I would invite you into a fruitful mindset rather than a frantic one and give you hope and courage. So, If you're going into kindergarten all the way up to your senior year, or if you're a college student, I want to invite you to come and stand here, right here on the floor. We've got our students coming in right now. And just come forward. We want to pray for you, bless you, and encourage you. And then as our students are coming in, um, I want to invite the rest of us, if you are able, to stand and be their sort of crowd of witnesses here to, to cheer them on, to support them. So would you please stand if you are able. We're going to extend a hand towards our students and say a a blessing over them as well. I'm going to pray out loud. If you want to pray in your own way over these students, we're going to do that for you. So students, welcome. I want to have you stand and look at me for just a second. Can you guys stand up and take a look at me? I know I'm not much to look at, but just for a moment, I promise, okay? I know you guys are going back to school, and some of you have already started school. How many of you started school already? Okay. Has it been scary? No. Of course not, right? It's great. It's easy peasy, right? And for some of you, uh, you're, you're going to be starting on Tuesday. I don't know if you knew that, uh, but you're starting on Tuesday, okay? And so hopefully you're feeling ready, you're feeling prepared, maybe some excitement, maybe you have some nerves, and that's okay. All of that's normal. Uh, but we as your church family, we want to pray for you and support you and let you know that we are cheering you on, that we love you, and that no matter how hard it gets, whether it's a test or maybe it's a relationship at school, no matter how hard it gets, We are here to love you and support you and encourage you and be your champions as you go throughout this year. So if you are okay with it, I would love to pray over you guys as you begin this new year of education, okay? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these students.
young and old, all starting something new. God, we pray that you would give them the courage they need to enter into something new. God, if they're learning new concepts, new subjects, that, and they're just not figuring out yet, that's okay. I pray that they would have family and friends and supported ones that can come alongside them, help them learn, help them grow in their education. But even more importantly, God, we pray for their attitude, their behavior, their character to grow and to flourish, that they might exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in their lives as well. Maybe they might show uh, love or, or connection with another person who's feeling like they don't belong or feeling like they're getting bullied. Pray for some of those students who are taking college-level classes, God. Dealing with the stress of having to pay rent or hold down a job as well, we pray that you would give them exactly what they need for this time and this season, Father. And God, we trust you. We love you. You are the beginning and the end. You are near us, and you will never forsake us. We pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you guys stick around? We're going to sing one more song. Let's sing out together. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message. I hope you found it enlightening or uh, even clarifying. Maybe you had some questions about uh, phrases like end times or uh, end of days, and and hopefully Pastor Jared's message brought you some clarity. Um, But if you would like to have any more conversations or have any more hard questions about topics like that, we would love to have conversations with you or to connect you with someone who can do so. Again, the connect cards can be the best way to ask those kind of questions. But also if you need just general encouragement and support, prayer, any of that, that connect card is again going to be the best way for you to reach out for those things. But I hope that you have a blessed week. I hope that you find time to dive into the Word and, and to read more uh, rich passages like the one that you heard uh, this in this message. But have a great week and we'll see you again real soon.